0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Today is Fed Day. Two o'clock, we'll get the statement from the Fed And 2.30, a press conference with Chairman Jay Powell. So we are very fortunate right now to have our next guest uh, to help us preview what we might hear. Danielle DiMartino Booth, she's the CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Fed Day today, and as Lisa was suggesting, how do you think the Fed chairman will address maybe one of the newer uncertainties in in the marketplace, which is the coronavirus? How do you think... Uh, Mr. Powell will react to that.
2: Well, he probably won't be up front and say that the insurance premium has gone up on global risks. Um, But he might toe the same type of line and say that in order to maintain the economic expansion, the Fed is going to do whatever it needs to do, including – any kind of global economic disruptions that are brought on. Kind of the same line that he was using with reference to the trade war. He's just going to pick it up and assign it to the coronavirus.
1: All right, so let's take it out of Jay Powell's uh, mouth and let's talk about what the potential economic uh, impact is on the United States. We're seeing, for example, Starbucks uh, closing down more than 2,000 stores in China Mm -hmm. in response to this. Apple said that they could take a material hit. They're looking at ways to divert their supply chain away from the Wuhan area. Do you think that markets are underpricing the potential impact on the U.S. economy from the
2: coronavirus spread, in particular with how much it's affecting the China economy? Yeah, and I think that you actually hit on the critical element here, right? Because Chinese, the Chinese economy has quadrupled in size in terms of its global footprint. It's now 16% of global GDP compared to 4% back when SARS broke. And now it is not a link. It is the link in the global supply chain. We've learned this the hard way throughout the trade war years. And I, I speak with Leland Miller. He's a friend of the show's China yep. Beige book. You know, he points out that the virus is in every single province. So this is not Isolate it to one province that is the seventh largest, and um, because Bloomberg actually ranks all of the, the supply chains. And over the weekend, they had a great story out. Bloomberg had a great story out that said well, the Wuhan is, is is number seven in the country. But right now, you've got a lot more than that being affected in the Chinese economy, and it will have blowback effects first in Germany, and then back here in the United States.
0: I mean, given what we learned, I'm not sure, you know, the the analogy for SARS, I'm not sure how strong it is or tenuous it is. Is there a sense of a lag time when we start may seeing some of the Chinese issues bleeding out into some of the economic data across the globe? What are you looking for?
2: So it's really difficult to say because, I mean, obviously markets are completely disregarding this. Yeah, but. I am no scientist, and I cannot tell you how bad this is going to get um, because you're starting to have cases crop up in countries where the the person has not visited China. So it's, for me, it's a gigantic unknown. I saw a few charts out of the sell side today, and it, it shows kind of a huge v, V-shaped v recovery that retail sales in China are going to take this big hit and come roaring right back. I'm not I'm, – I'm just not buying it because – like Broughton Capital, for example, they feed CAS, the, the freight index that's followed yep. so closely now. They came out with fresh data this morning that showed that their leading indicator of leading indicators, which is <laughs> Shanghai air freight, air freight, contracted year over year again prior to this virus outbreak. So, it's it's still less is less is less bad is good but you're kicking the global reflation trade before it quite reflated.
1: Well, okay, this is the key question here. How much are people using the coronavirus as an excuse to sell at a time when they're a little bit wary of whether this reflation trade is actually taking off. And I wonder if there is sort of a uh, a different story being told by bonds and stocks, given the rally that we're seeing in treasuries. Do you think that, that sort of foretells a weaker economy that's being priced in the next? Oh, look,
2: absolutely. It's in, in a matter of three trading days, we've gone from being inverted on the three-month, five-year Two days later, three months, seven year. Today, three months, ten years, five basis points away. I mean, Jay Powell just spent over 400 billion dollars to uninvert the yield curve, and the bond market is telling him, and pending home sales are telling him both, and the auto sector in the United States and really messy earnings out of Detroit. And by the way, we're all ignoring Boeing because they did they had kitchen sink earnings. Right. The industrial recession in the United States is not over. Period end, and the yield curve is telling J Powell that not only do they want him to move out to coupon purchases and away from Treasury bills, which is Lail Brainerd's thats her—that's her blueprint, that's the framework. Go out to 12 months first, out to 24 months later, and then put the cap on. But it's also telling J Powell that it wants a rate cut, and that's where he does not want to go. And just to sort of uh, put the bow on Boeing they did put the kitchen sink
1: out there they were they doing well in uh, in trading at least when you look at their stock price and meanwhile they're borrowing tons of money with the lender demand uh, for that Boeing loan that we've been reporting on uh, for the past few weeks growing to 14 billion dollars people eager to lend yeah, to this company just
2: calling Molly Smith where are you I mean, it's just amazing
1: <laughs> well and we can get into the duopoly and the sort of question of whether the governance was less strict uh, as a result of their market position but that unfortunately have to be another uh, conversation Danielle DiMartino Booth always Look too forward short to it. chief executive officer and chief strategist for Quill Intelligence former advisor to the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg opinion columnist leading the charge has been Apple uh, after their better than expected earnings, showing that the iPhone is still strong, it's still dominant, producing uh, profits that are to be envied around the world, frankly, Uh, and not to mention a cash pile of $207 billion. David Garrity joining us now, chief market strategist for Laidlaw and Company and a partner at BT Block. David, thank you so much for being here. What was the sort of most interesting aspect of Apple's earnings to
3: you? In terms of the guidance for the March quarter, which was showing the, the revenue range of 63 to 67 billion dollars, indicating their own uncertainty with respect to the impact in China of essentially the quarantine, which it certainly is immobilizing the population there and, and certainly keeping people away from Apple stores where they've cut back a number of, ships, of shifts and actually um, closed a number of locations. Um, but. I think overall, if we have to look at um, Apple as a bellwether for the tech sector, to the extent that Apple has pretty much sort of seemed so far to have dodged the bullet from the Wuhan SARS uh, contagion, uh, certainly some of the names we're looking at elsewhere, Facebook after the close today, um, you know, Twitter, Google, Alphabet, uh, Amazon. We, we think that uh, you know, the Paul from China, uh, isn't necessarily going to cast itself so wide. We look as if we've had fairly decent results in the U.S. Certainly with respect to going back to Apple, their iPhone 11, uh, a strong introduction, uh, returning to growth in that category. Uh, we have seen global smartphone shipments decline in 2019, down I think about 3%. That was a first for that market. But looking forward um, to, say, 20. 20- 21. We're going to have the rollout increasingly of 5G cellular communications networks. Apple will have a 5G-enabled phone coming out later this year. This arguably is going to be a significant product transition, not just for Apple, but for the tech sector as a whole.
0: So with Apple, I guess the uh, services revenue came in a little bit weaker than expected. Is that an area of concern for you, given that that, a lot of investors feel like that's gonna be the longer-term growth driver for this company?
3: Certainly, looking at at Apple's success in growing the subscriber base for the Apple um, services operations, they ended the year at, uh, what, 480 million subscribers, up a third from 360 million a year ago, and their target is 600 million. uh, by the end of 2020. Granted, you know, 33% growth in 2019 followed, by 25% growth in 2020, people might say, well, things are going to slow. My argument here more is that this is going to be the base of customers off which Apple is going to be driving increasingly larger amounts of recurring high margin revenue, which I think is going to be important for the valuation.
1: What should they do with their uh, $207 billion of cash? <laughs>
3: It, clearly, uh, there's always going to be uh, arguments made with regards to um, what do they do around, you know, continuing to buy back their stock. But certainly there's temptation as far as acquisitions are concerned. And We think certainly if you look at the Disney Plus streaming service that's out there, uh, you know, does Apple take this opportunity to come in uh, and possibly enhance their own abilities by looking? I know people have talked about Netflix for ages. Right. Um you know, there are a number of possibilities. Now, obviously, having two hundred billion dollars in loose change, um, you know,
0: isn't such a bad place to be. Stocks essentially doubled over the last twelve months. Are you, do you have valuation concerns yet? How do you think about the valuation of the stock?
3: No, I mean certainly, you know, people have have raised the concerns. You know, is a trillion dollar valuation sort of a ceiling? Uh, you know, is it possible uh, for public companies to go above and beyond that? Um, I don't necessarily want to try and minimize, uh, or or the other way around. I'm not trying to exaggerate, perhaps the importance of five G, but and the rollout. But I think that this is going to be something quite significant in terms of the range of services that this might open up. So we're at a point in time analytically where we need to look forward and and see what are the potential new revenue streams that might be gotten as a result of having this greater bandwidth and the ability to move larger amounts of data faster.
1: All right, let's look ahead because we're getting Facebook reporting earnings after the bell, Amazon reporting earnings tomorrow after the bell. And I'm wondering, uh, with Facebook in particular, the shares up on nearly 2% today, how concerned are you about the political liability? I you know Senator Warren is job voting Facebook yet again, and they're sort of in the immediate crosshairs of some potential regulatory oversight.
3: Yeah, I believe that we've commented, you know, previously, we've said certainly that as regards twenty twenty, um, social media companies, Facebook in particular, in, in the regulatory crosshairs, um, the issue is that most likely significant regulation may not necessarily be seen until 2021 after we get past the presidential election, uh, which if one wanted to be cynical, one would say that given the amount of money that's being put into social media around the general election, that certainly argues positively on the margin near term for Facebook perhaps as a stock. Um, however, you know, does that make it merely a trade? And to the extent if the prospects become clearer as we go into November, you know, would you necessarily want to fade Facebook going into the general election? that might be a very short-term trading call against a longer-term perspective that clearly is going to be more negative. There were some other elements apart from um, Senator Warren. Um, There had been hearings uh, held in the House, I think, over the last two weeks, just talking from smaller technology companies of what it's been like to go up and compete against these larger companies, whether it's a Facebook or an Amazon or others, which argues that within the tech sector, uh, the prospects of regulation become more significant as we go past the general election. So, 2021 is where the hammer comes down.
0: So assuming that it kind of plays out, is you think these tech names are still going to be the drivers for the overall market like we've seen them in you know in the years past. Some people have been talking about maybe rotate into some maybe more cyclical names or things like that?
3: Um in, in terms of sort of stepping back and, and looking at things more broadly. Um you know, the things that drive that drive GDP growth, it's population growth and productivity growth. Um, 2019 in the United States, our population growth was 0.5%. We had 42 states where the population actually declined. We look globally, Japan, uh, death rate exceeds birth rate, which is essentially the formula for declining population growth. If we're going to have GDP growth, this is gonna to have to rely upon productivity growth, which argues for disruptive technology Innovation. I would argue against that backdrop, you know, this move towards 5G, you know, it has many facets in terms of what this might do around productivity growth. So if technology remains significant from the standpoint of economic development, I would argue it still will maintain significance in terms of investors positioning.
1: David Garrity, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Company, also a partner at BT Block. Consensus trade heading into 2020, among them was that the dollar would weaken and that emerging market currencies would outperform. So far, That has not panned out. Quite the opposite. In fact, you've seen dollar strength and emerging currencies are currently at the weakest versus the dollar since December 25th. This according to the MSCI index data on the Bloomberg. And I'm wondering how long this could persist. Ed Al-Husseini joining us here, senior interest rates and currencies analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. And, you know, this just really is a conundrum with the coronavirus is the reversal in this consensus trade something that has legs for the rest of the year, or is this a buying opportunity heading into the rest of 2020?
4: Yeah, thanks. Well, well I think it's, it's early days, uh, let's be fair, but to the extent that two things happened into the end of last year. First, EMFX was one of the worst performing asset classes. Uh, so it looked relative, rel- relatively cheap, uh, particularly versus other pockets of risk. And second, the recovery in in data that we saw globally, at least the nascent recovery in, into the end of last year, was in Asian PMI data. Uh, and, and really, the the cementing of the phase one agreement gave it a lot of impetus. So we saw the Remembe, start to react positively, and then lead uh, a high beta EMFX into the beginning of the year. Um, All of that's been beaten out now. Obviously, uh, the fundamental risk here is that what's happening in China and potentially a slowdown in China spills over into broader Asia in the first half of this year. Um, And then a broader reassessment of risk, uh, which is, you know, we're seeing happen right now. You know, US Treasury's back at uh, 1.6. very early stages, but if we do see a broader reassessment of risk, EMFX will again uh, uh, look uh, as, as relatively unattractive. Is there, are there any pockets of opportunities out there? I'm assuming
0: we're going to steer clear of Asia, perhaps?
4: Yeah, I think interesting, a couple of uh, relatively high-yielding names. Uh, they're relatively closed economies where the fundamentals are good, particularly from a fiscal and external account perspective. Russia is a great example that stands out, and the ruble has been. Um, in in the eye of of the weakness here, um, do stand out as places where there's value. Let's take the flip side of that, South Africa, where fundamentals are weakening, we're weakening until the end of last year, the currency looked rich last year, uh, and now we have a a high beta EM currency that's going to lead the sell-off. So that currency looks particularly vulnerable.
1: I'm looking right now, also at the yield curve flattening that we've seen. I mean, it's basically every consensus trade is getting hit really hard in January. And I'm trying to think, you know, given the fact that you guys oversee almost $470 billion, at least that was as of of September, given the fact that you deal with hundreds of different institutions and get their read on what's going on, do people have a sense that this is just a bad January? Or do they have a sense that, Perhaps their assumptions for the year are inaccurate.
4: Too early, there's not been a real wholesale reassessment when it comes to risk in particular. I think especially if you look at you know, growth expectations for the U.S., earnings expectations for the U.S., they really haven't moved. Uh, and, and in fact, what's so Could there be? Could it be? Um, early days, and again, I, <laughs> I tend to think, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, you know, markets like equities, uh, you know, people sell first and then build a narrative around that later. Uh, valuations are on the rich side. Uh, going into the beginning of this year, we did not see uh, value, for example, in places like high yield, uh, and and now that that there's been a bit of a sell-off, some of those sectors are starting to look a, l- a little bit more attractive. But again, in the grand scheme of things, if we take a step back, credit spreads are pretty compressed. Treasury yields are you know one one six. Uh, it's very consistent with an economy that's slowing, and it's very consistent with an economy that needs significant amounts of stimulus just to stay where it is, not to slow further. Uh, and and that's where we are. And that's not an environment where you, you really want to stick your neck out when it comes to risk.
0: So, Ed, every time we chat with a, a currency strategist, trader, investor, I always have to ask the question, is there a bear case for the dollar?
4: I think so. And I think the bear case was starting to form at the beginning of the year. And, and, and it went something like this. Look, uh, to the extent that Uh, we've seen a significant bid for the dollar, a safe haven bid for the dollar. It came from two points. First, U.S. growth was superior to that of Europe. Uh, And second, U.S. rates were significantly higher. So it was was a positive carry trade. With the phase one deal, with U.S. data starting to stabilize and European data starting to actually outperform, if you look in the surprise indices, European data is surprised to the upside significantly faster than than U.S. data in the last six months. there was a case that that those flows would reverse in Europe's favor uh, from an asset flow perspective as well. European assets relatively cheap to to the U.S. when it comes to when it comes to risk, and so some of the flows could have potentially reversed. All of that has taken a backseat in part because it was a consensus position at the beginning of the year, uh, and it's really getting beaten out.
1: You said that because high yield has uh, come off a bit, you didn't like high yield heading into 2020. Uh, It it has sold off a bit in the past few sessions. At what point would it be enough for you to see opportunity?
4: Um, You know, obviously, the the interesting thing about high yield is the sector level the corporate level work right you have to get into the individual bonds uh at an index level if you just look at uh you know like the high yield cds index it's 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 very early Uh, obviously to the extent that we were short we're covering some of that short as it sells off but we're not really going going long at this stage
0: how about pound sterling? Brexit's, you know, we're getting to the point where it's going to, the UK is going to come out of Brexit. Then you start the long work of actually doing trade deals and things like that. What is your thoughts on sterling right here? It's around one thirty
4: right now. Pretty pretty vulnerable, yeah. you know, in, in part because we did a really good job of pricing in um, the reduction in uncertainty uh, that, that, that followed the, the election last year. We priced that in pretty aggressively last year. Um, and what we have now is, is, is a new catalyst in the form of, of the Bank of England. Uh, we'll find out tomorrow, but, but clearly there's been a shift. Uh, the, the threshold in terms of the accumulation of data, weak data in the course of last year, has now reached the threshold where a, a cut or a potential shallow easing cycle is on the table for them. Uh, they're behind the curve relative to the ECB and, and, and the Fed. Uh, and that could really damage, uh, damage Sterling's prospect.
1: One thing that you said earlier, that this market uh, needs a substantial amount of central bank stimulus to keep it going. What do you think that means for the Fed as we await Jay Powell's testimony today, or not testimony, but his press conference at uh, 2.30 p.m. Eastern?
4: Well, look, the the Fed is is going to be on hold. They've telegraphed that pretty well. It's been priced by the markets. In fact, we have easing down the curve through the end of of the year, there's not a lot of heavy lifting to do there. I think where the the challenge is really communicating at the moment with respect to its balance sheet. Um, One of the narratives in the market is because the Fed is engaged in repo and buying T-bills, the balance sheet is optically growing and that's stimulating risk. Um, Personally, I'm not convinced that that's the case, but a lot of market participants buy into that view. And from the Fed's perspective, it presents a challenge because These operations will presumably cease at some point this year, uh, and then the balance sheet will start to shrink. Uh, Explaining that is is, is going to be challenging.
0: Ed Al-Husseini, thanks so much for joining us. Ed is a senior interest rate and currency analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio.
1: The spread of the coronavirus has dominated world markets, although less so in the United States. A key question facing markets, especially considering that the consensus heading into 2020 was that the world economy would outperform the U.S. economy this year in terms of growth. Does the spread of the coronavirus potentially threaten that and and potentially uh, indicate that world growth is going to slow substantially while the U.S. remains more immune? Joining us now, I'm so pleased to say, Stephanie Flanders, Senior Executive Editor for Bloomberg Economics and former advisor to U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, Larry Summers. Stephanie, do you think that the concept of world growth outperforming the U.S. is threatened? based on what we're seeing by the spread of the coronavirus?
5: I think it depends. I mean, we're obviously looking at a uh, cut in potentially the Q1 or Q2 growth forecast for China and some of the other parts of particularly Asia, where you're seeing the most impact in terms of people not going to work, shops being closed, et cetera, et cetera. I think the basic story we had at the beginning of the year, which was around uh the world kind of getting better a bit more than the U.S. The U.S. seeing slower growth this year and the rest of the world actually coming out a bit out of the the sort of slow spot it had last year. I think that basic story is still there but obviously one reason why the markets are nervous is that we don't yet know quite how big a deal this is going to be and that's obviously going to we'll we'll keep debating that over the next few months. Stephanie we've seen
0: or some reporting and some signs some data suggesting that Uh, Europe has seen some stabilization in their economics uh, outlook. Are you seeing that as well in the data you look at?
5: Yeah, and if you look at it, we even saw with some German data in the last week or so, and we're gonna, at the end of the week, we'll get even a better sense because we've got some GDP numbers coming from quite a lot of the key Eurozone economies. But I would say that's right, that we were sort of, we were taken aback by the speed of the downturn in Germany particularly uh, last year, but now we're seeing activity come back a bit. You're seeing wages pick up. Um, It's still, you know, the yardstick is always pretty low when it comes to the eurozone. (laughs) You know, you interviewed the German finance minister and he was happy on a day where there was 0% GDP growth because it was potentially negative. So I think it's not the kind of growth that people in the U.S. would be happy with, but it's certainly looking better. The momentum is there compared to last year.
1: The Fed meets uh, and has been meeting in Washington, the press conference later today at 2 p.m., 2.30 p.m. 2 2 p.m. is the uh, statement release, Wall Street time. What are you expecting them to say with respect to exogenous risks, among them the coronavirus. Well, it's
5: interesting. I mean, there is a sort of boilerplate statement in part of their statement where they talk about external developments. And I suspect that the assumption is that the virus will not be mentioned specifically, but it obviously is potentially included in that. And I I bet the first question or one of the first questions to Jay Powell will be, how are you thinking about the virus? And so we'll hear a bit more about their thinking. But it it has not come to the point where you would say this is something they're going to to respond explicitly explicitly to in the way that maybe they would have responded to worries about China in the past.
0: So Stephanie, this Federal Reserve has described itself as data dependent. Do you think that data supports them Kind of sitting on the sidelines for the next couple of quarters. I mean, if you look at the uh, the futures market, that not, re- not really looking for a rate cut till maybe sometime later in the year.
5: Yeah, and I think uh, he's indicated that he thinks that's a bit premature to be a su- to be counting on that rate cut over the course of this year. But there's certainly, the ex- there's no expectation for a rate cut in the first half. And I suspect we will hear that phrase again, you know, the good place, we are in a good place. Uh, the US economy is in a good place. There's not been a big shift in the data relative to the Fed's expectations since the last meeting. And in fact, a lot of the action, insofar as there is any action coming out of this meeting, is gonna be more about that, what's the Fed doing to increase reserves and how far is it gonna go on increasing the balance sheet? You've now seen that significant run up In effect a big injection of liquidity to respond to that problem in the repo market that we saw a few months ago. Some debate about whether that's quantitative easing, not quantitative easing, lots of sort of philosophical arguments about that in the markets. But I suspect if there's any fire out of this press conference, it will be in Jay Powell's response to questions on that, the future path of the balance sheet, how much more can the market expect to get on that? I want to focus on this
1: gap between the Fed saying that they're on hold for the remainder of 2020 and markets that are calling their bluff and saying we are expecting at least one rate cut this year because that's what's being priced into the market. Over the past decade, the market's been right or perhaps has jawboned the Fed into action on numerous occasions. 2013 was an example of what happens when they don't when they don't get what they want. Do you expect that that's, that's basically what's going to happen this time? I around? think
5: there's a number of ways you can read those that the forward pricing because you could argue that uh, a lot of people that that, that uh, sort of average expectation actually encompasses two things it encompasses you know a reasonably high chance of no movement from the Fed plus a chance that if they do move they 're going to move quite a lot. you know They have made clear because we don 't have very much ammo, if we see a problem we 're going to respond might be more than we would have done in the past, maybe sooner than we would have done in the past. If you think that there, if something goes wrong this year that they would actually respond with a half point not a quarter point. Uh, or even more than that, in response to, to a slowdown, then if you average out the sort of you know say a 30% possibility of that, with a no, then you can I get see. if you look at that market. I mean, obviously I'm sort of the, the numbers are rough, but I think that is there's a still a lot. If you ask a lot of people in the markets, yep. I'm not sure what you're seeing in the is the pricing is that that is what they expect. It's the average of two different scenarios.
0: Stephanie Flanders, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you joining us here. Stephanie Flanders, senior executive editor for economics ahead of Bloomberg Economics. Uh, based in London, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio whenever Denver, she's in town. We look forward to having her. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.